The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky, Kinky Connections, and Kinky Education. We're kinky, done differently. what women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self. With questions asked by a guy. And now here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, hi there, catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to the show, and welcome to all of you listeners. We greatly appreciate having you with us each and every week. This week, a very special human joins us on the show. She's a Southern California-based dominatrix whose history goes over five decades, and she's the organizer of some of the most amazing events and opportunities for all of us in the kink community, and you're going to enjoy meeting her. She's the diva of domination. Mistress Cyan was introduced to the lifestyle in 1989 and has become a well-respected leader in the Los Angeles BDSM and leather communities. She's known for her charity and dedication to the community for her skills with a single tail. In 2006, more than 32,000 people were fed as a result of Mistress Cyan's charity efforts. Mr. Cyan is the only person in Southern California, if not the entire country, who has produced major conventions, promoted a fetish nightclub, performed at many fetish clubs and events, produces a leather contest, owns her own dungeon, and is active in both the BDSM and leather lifestyle. She is the founder and organizer of DomCon LA and DomCon Atlanta, and also, in the modern era, DomCon New Orleans. And she's the owner-operator of Sanctuary in Los Angeles. She's appeared in numerous TV shows and movies and is a well-known face in the fetish world as a model and an award-winning member of the leather community. And that's just the introduction to the woman that is so much more than the diva of domination, Mr. Cyan on what women and other wonderful humans want. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it the first five. First time you ever walked into a dungeon and your feelings doing so. Ooh, that's, an, that's gonna be a good one. Actually, when I first got into everything, there wasn't any public dungeons uh, as there were today. And actually, uh, it was before you could even hook up on the internet. You end up getting a, a sending out letters to a publisher that had ads, and they would put the code on it and re and forward it on. Anyway, I did that, and I was in correspondence with some people <clears throat> and a woman here in Orange County, California. We were corresponding, and she invited me over for her her uh, birthday, and she said, "You know, I'm having a big birthday, and um, I'd love to have you come, but." Don't tell anybody we haven't actually met in person, okay? Uh, okay, so we went over there, went to the party, and as the evening went on, it was less and less people, and I thought, wow, but it kind of left. And I realized I didn't really see people leaving out the front door, so I asked her, I said, where did we go? And she says, oh, they're out in the dungeon. Here, let me show you. So they takes me outside to the towards the garage. And she said, this is, this is our play space. And uh, it's all soundproof and everything else. And brings me in. And oh, my God, talk about being shocked. The first scene I see is this woman is suspended against the wall. 
And this guy is stripping candle wax on her private parts. And she's screaming like she's being dismembered. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've got to get out of here. I was at that point still in the corporate world. And I'm thinking, if, you know, if I get arrested or something, they're like, no, settle down. So everything's consensual and everything is there's no drugs and alcohol and stuff. Just watch. So I watched. And when the scene was done, there was this, this embrace and aftercare that was very, you know, like touching. And I'm like, wow, it, it, it was a such a dichotomy of feelings. Because when I first walked in, I I read about it. I'd seen, you know, some, uh, you know, magazine articles and books and stuff like that. But witnessing it in person was intense. And uh, yet the intensity was just as far the other way when it was over as far as the eroticism as far as the aftercare and the bonding uh it just it that that took what was the, the what i would consider a fetish or an interest at at Barra kink into like wow this is where i belong can you remember the first scene that you had from the bottom oh yeah Yes, um, I was. Uh, it was actually with a group of, of friends um, who, again, at a uh, house in Riverside, had, had um, that they had like parties every every second Saturday of the month, and uh, I was there, and it was my birthday, and I said, "Oh, it's birthday's banging," and then, you know, my thing was, "Nope." Not in the pain, not going to take in, um, not not in his pain, none of that. And they're going on and on and on. I um, so I took and finally agreed to it and said, okay, fine. So this spanking was nothing like what I thought it was going to be. I I associated spanking with with punishment and things. I never got spanked when I was a kid, but you know it was like, you no, know, this is, and this turned out to be very erotic, and it was stingy but not stingy enough to say stop uh kind of like being in a shower when you take and uh, got the hot water on and you get used to it and you turn it up a little more well that's what this was like the new one that i was kind of new and i was playing with experienced people and that birthday spanking put me in a place that said wow that's even though i've seen this going on this is the first time i've really experienced something i didn't think i would like it and i did and i've been a type a personality dominant my whole life i thought that this was my kind of yin yang in life that this is i must be a sub in this this is my balance and for the next four years i was on the sub side i saw in an interview where you said that you did not have a choice to be transgender but you did have a choice of how to accept it Describe those first moments when you had the acceptance for yourself. I think because um, I pretty much stayed in the closet through most of my life and I did everything I could in high school and college, excelling in sports and everything to kind of prove my masculinity. And, um, and I think the first time I really came to acceptance was that um, I... I have, I would say, just started doing professional Dom stuff. And I was still in, I was working in the music business. And my, I I was kind of living two separate lives. And uh, I had, there was a gig that uh, Atlantic Records invited me out to for one of their artists. And I invited my friend who was a dominatrix who I worked working with. And we went out there. And, um, we, I got busy with some things. Well, the next day at the studio, at the dungeon, she goes, I'm so sorry. I think I outed you. And I said, what? And she goes, I think I outed you. I kept calling you Katie instead of, you know, your, your male name. And again, at first people were like, who, what, who's that? And uh, well, that night I went home and I thought, and I thought, you know what I'm doing now? I'm burdening other people with my baggage, with my secret. Okay, and that's not fair for to do with my friend. So the next morning I got up and I came out and I contacted the record companies and my friends and everything. And I expected a little bit of a backlash, a little bit of distancing, and the acceptance was overwhelming. 
it was like, well, we're so happy that you're, you're following your path, you know? And we didn't know why, because during, in the music business, I was a promoter and a, and a manager. And, uh, but I had my hair long, my nails painted black, uh, dressed very androgynous and they're like, eye makeup. And they're like, well, we didn't know if you were gay or goth or what it was, but now it explains a lot. And I got that total acceptance that it made me accept myself as well. Uh, when I told my therapist about it and he said, well, you know, your whole life, you've been living a life of trying to be what people wanted you to be. And this is the first time now that you're, that you're finding out that people are, are your friends because of who you are, not because of who they think you are. That's a beautiful story. And thank you for sharing it. First time you swung open the doors at your own dungeon and how you felt. Oh, boy. Um, pride and excitement you know we took an um uh i had that was a little bit of a transgression as far as um you know how it was coming to be about because i had partnered with um with two people uh well i had partnered with somebody and we had a, a three-level townhouse in glendale and the owners were cool with it we told them we did erotic photography and stuff well <clears throat> Every time it rained, the sliding glass door in the patio downstairs would end up flooding the carpet. So they ended up selling the complex. The new owners came in, said, nope, we're not going to have this back. So I went to work with, it, with a couple of other people. And I got contacted by Mistress Omega and Mistress Nicole and asked me to partner with them in um, a dungeon in, Res in Reseda, which I did. And through attrition, you know, one of them decided to move on. Uh, because she was living kind of far away. The other one, her and her husband had been trying to get pregnant and she finally got pregnant. So she worked until she couldn't. And I took over the entire thing. And I remember walking in the door the very first day when it was like, quote, all mine and thinking, wow, this is, this, this is really something I never in my life, having gone through college in microbiology and entomology, and working in the corporate world and manufacturing and working in the music industry, this is the last thing I thought that I would be doing or where I would be. And it was, uh, and it was very exciting. I think it was as exciting as when my, my daughter got, you know, first turned um, 18 and, uh, and found out that she had a little bit of a kinky side and was able to show her, you know, show her, show her the dungeon and have her accept everything. First time you ever stood in front of the crowd at DomCon and realized this is what I've created. Um, I think, oh my gosh, that's, um, I mean, I was kind of surprised when I first started it. I expected it just to be a, a small LA event to bring the locals and some of the pros and stuff together. But 30 days into, uh, after announcing it, it had already become a national event. People from all over the country were coming and stuff. And I think that's when I, I realized that, wow, this is, this is not, this, this is much bigger than I thought it was going to be. But I think um, the very first DomCon, even, I was really overwhelmed at how many people came and the acceptance and the enthusiasm and the excitement. And I think the, the biggest thing was that the reason I started DomCon is I was in a um, I was in a Yahoo group for Femdom, and I got uh, banned from it. And when I asked the um, uh, the moderator, they said, "Well, you're a professional. This is for lifestyle. I've been lifestyle for years, but I just you know I, I'm pro because that's I enjoyed that at work, and I realized that." there was a big disconnect between the lifestyle community and the professional community. And so I thought, well, DomCon can bring it together. And I heard everybody telling me before the first DomCon, this is never going to work. The pros aren't going to come together. They're going to try to one-up each other. They're going to take in, they're not going to want to divulge secrets or business practice uh, with each other. It's not going to work. The lifestyle people are going to boycott it because it's a, a pro event. And that didn't happen. It came together. And I think one of the biggest joys to this day was following that first DomCon, seeing the chatter online that the pros saying, wow, I, a lot of these people who were 
just lifestyle. We figured like weekend players and some of them teaching the classes were amazing. We learned so much. And then lifestyle people like, wow, we, it was really enlightening because these dominants aren't, these pro-doms are not just people who are dressing up for money and, you know, in their latex and stuff. They're really serious about what they do. So it, it brought the two communities together. And that was a, that was a goal that I reached after the very first one. With, and I didn't think it would, it would go that quick. I thought it would take much more. More to come with the diva of domination, Mistress Cyan, when we return on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Hi, this is Venus, and I have a special message going out to all the single ladies listening right now. What if you could have a committed, loving relationship with a partner who is monogamous to you, but who would love to see you have sexual experiences with others? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. You really can have your cake and eat it too. You can have it all. Learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. This is Tanya Tate. And have you listened to my podcast? Tanya Tate presents MILFs Making Money. I share a whole lot of positivity, tips and tools on how myself and other women in the adult industry make money on premium social media platforms. If you want to hear me interview many different guests, then get yourself over there, milfsmakingmoney.com. And you can also search my name, MILFs Making Money, on all of your usual podcast platforms. And if you enjoyed listening to What Women Want podcast, make sure you get yourself over and subscribe to my podcast, MILFsMakingMoney.com. Have you ever wanted to try something a little kinky in the bedroom but had no idea where to start? Or maybe your partner just told you they're into water sports. No, not the jet ski kind. And you really want to fulfill their fantasy, but you're nervous. That's totally normal. I'm Kate Sloan. I'm a sex journalist who's talked about kink in magazines like Cosmo, Playboy, and Glamour, and on my podcast, The Dildorks. My new book, 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do, is a guide to some of the hottest and best-known kinks out there, from age play to zapping and everything in between. Each section offers three suggestions for ways you can try out your new interest with a partner or even by yourself. Curious? Order your copy now at 101kinkythings.com and start learning new things about your sexuality. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about my friends at Lotus Blooms. Lotus Blooms is an adult shop with a different kind of feel. You'll notice the difference when you walk into the warm, welcoming shop where everyone is welcome and celebrated. They offer a beautiful collection of size-inclusive lingerie and steel bone corsets, and their staff loves helping folks find something they feel amazing in. They also carry a curated collection of body-safe sex toys and vibrators, impact toys, and restraints. And their incredible staff are trained as educators, and they look forward to helping you explore your pleasure. Visit them in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., or shop online at www.lotusblooms.com. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want. P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. And now back to this episode of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Welcome back to the show, joined by Mistress Cyan from Los Angeles, starting as a music executive. That Sounds like it can be an adventure in a bunch of stories all to itself now, couldn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's, it's <clears throat> my life is it was has been pretty interesting. I took it, um, I went to school for, in biological sciences, and while I was going to college, I ended up getting a job, part time job from a company my brother was working at. So by the time I was getting out of college, 
I worked myself into a management position. So I eventually, um, well, ended up working as a director of operations for that company that got bought out by another. So I was um, a corporate executive of a company, a three and a half billion dollar corporation. Wow. Um, at that business, I met um, uh, uh, the vice president had been the worked in stage management for what was, well, I don't know, this is people reminding me of the show called The California Jam back in the 70s, which was a huge, huge outdoor festival at the um, Ontario Motor Speedway. And he had brought in a bunch of people like Jimi Hendrix's cousin and these all these musicians and stuff to, to work. So I kind of connected up with some of these and I'd always had an interest in music, but uh, couldn't play. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I went through working as in manufacturing as a, as a director of operations and on the side started taking work in the music business a little bit. And uh, that person, him and his partners started up a, um, a production company and in the, I think it was mid eighties. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to work with them. And I did, well, it was right at the, the height of the John Travolta urban cowboy Mm-hmm. thing going on so they were looking at doing all the you know the country stuff and the and that and it was like i'm in the rock and roll so they said to me you could well you handle the rock and roll aspect of things and we'll uh, we'll do this the other so i started doing some uh promoting local shows you know, around la and by 1990 um we just weren't going the same direction, but I made a lot of contact and stuff. So I started a company called First Class Productions and we started doing the Sunset Strip and we ended up being the largest promoter of uh, the Whiskey Box, the Intruvador, you know, during the 89, 90, 91, 92, around there. And uh, in that process, I also got to see a lot of bands that I'd booked. And so a couple of them I started managing. And so I got into uh, artist management and uh, not only promoting shows, but booking them sh- other shows, uh, which led to uh, making friends with uh, people in the publication business, music publication, uh, print media, and wrote a few articles and uh, ended up publishing my own music and entertainment magazine for seven years called Night News Music and Entertainment Magazine. And uh, that's what basically gave me the freedom to start you know, um, going kind of my kink direction too, because it wasn't a nine to five job. I didn't, I wasn't accounting, accountable to anyone. I was pretty much my own boss. And that um, the, uh, and when I did come out, you know, uh, one of the things too, was I was concerned about my band. I was concerned. I was my own worst enemy about my gender. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I was afraid, oh my God, is my band, so how I'm managing their careers, are they going to, suffer backlash because of finding out their managers and trans and stuff like that. Cause in the, in the, you know, the early nineties, it wasn't accepted the way it is today. It was not. And uh, so I kind of transitioned from the music business uh, into my doing my, my domination stuff. And after about seven years with the magazine, the prices of paper started going up. Uh, internet advertising started hitting and it got really hard to, to continue getting print advertising and to get the paper, the magazine going. So we ended up stopping the magazine and I focused on my pro-dom career basically. And, um, and that's really, but it's amazing how many people I've met in the BDSM world that I crossed paths with back in the music world that did, but we didn't even know it. I've often heard that there's a rhythm to a good scene and that music for many of the doms that I've played with has been the basis of what creates their story. Now you come from the executive business to the music business to the pro-dom business and suddenly all this comes together in starting events that you have this background in doing and now you're bringing it to this new industry that is ready to break out into the open. Talk to me about that transition. 
Um, I guess it was kind of um, kind of accidental. I mean, I um, I had experience, like you said, like you said, in some, like some of the production of the events and stuff at the Whiskey, the Roxy, and those kind of places. So you know, scheduling and organizing wasn't a problem. You know, what I learned in college, more important than anything else, was um, uh, was how to organize. You know, it wasn't about what you know; it's about how to get the information you need because you're not going to retain everything. As a submissive, when I first got into the lifestyle, I mentioned earlier for four years, I was on the submissive side. I got collared and everything else. And what that experience did is um, it helped me develop an intense uh, sense of self-discipline. Being a type A and a dominant person, you know, if somebody asked me to do something, I go to the end of the world for them. But if they told me we had a different story, I did not take orders well. And here all of a sudden I found myself collared and having to take direction. And, you know, and there were times that my dom wanted to keep the conversation or yeah, end the conversation. I wanted to keep it going, but I made a commitment to myself, you know, to be the best that I could and, and, and adhere to the commitment that I made. So it, it built a really intense sense of commitment uh, and self-discipline. So all those little, little building blocks ended up coming together to help me build this building of DomCon, so to speak, or my, I had the organization of the skills from going to college. I had the, uh, the dominant personality, a part of being aggressive and go-getter. And I had the self-discipline coming from being a, a submissive to be able to keep that focus and keep the goal in sight. And also being realistic enough from what my my mom and dad had taught me you know growing up about uh about focusing and and uh, and how important time management was uh, my my i remember as a child i said you know the only thing that you're given when you come into this world is time okay and the problem is you don't know how much you've got and it doesn't matter what you do or how much you make when your time is up, it's up. You can't get any more of it. So you don't know how much you have and you can't. So use your time wisely. So all those aspects of things all came together and it just naturally came there. I came up with the idea of, uh, of, of doing DomCon and it was like, okay, how do I organize this? I'm going to stay committed to it. I'm going to stay focused on it. And, and it, all, it all came together. But I think it's, it's a matter of everything that, we open ourselves up as we grow and uh and i admit when early on to when first started thinking about domcon and made that first commitment to the hotel it's like oh my god you know i don't know if, are people going to come are we going to get stuck and go you know i'm going to go bankrupt and for not be able to pay for all this and what's going to happen um and it can get it can get stressful but they um again staying staying focused staying disciplined and um uh, it kept me on track. You talk about focus in such an amazing way. And having been a bottom in collard, you went from this totally in control executive to being someone who was under control and directed and guided in what to do. And then you move over to the Dom side where now you are directing and guiding people. And the thing that I have found so amazing through my brief journey, as far as having a, a singular Dom that's worked with me is how my life had been so much in control that I wanted to feel out of control. But now the journey has come back to how do I get control of all these emotions that are going on in me? Talk to me about the transition from the bottom to the top and how focus just played a major role in that. Well, it was, it was very important because I think, um, I think focus and perseverance are the two things that will, uh, are the keys to success. Um, and also uh, the ability you know, that self-discipline so that when you're confronted with something, you can respond to it rather than react to it. You know, when you respond, you have a chance to analyze it, 
come up with something and then work, go on it compared to reacting on an emotional level where you just, I think in my experience it's been nine times out of 10, if you react to something, you usually come back and go, I could have handled that better. Okay. So as a submissive, uh, for me, it wasn't a matter of feeling as a sub or that I was being controlled. It was a matter of, uh, I looked at it as that I was still in control and I was surrendering this. Mm. This is what I was giving. Okay. And that, um, and it's funny as a sub, uh, I also, I'm, I'm an overachiever. I want to do the best that I can 110% or nothing. So my focus was, well, if I'm going to be collared and I'm going to be a slave, I'm going to be the best damn slave out there. Okay. <laughs> and you know what? I want everybody in the community coming up to my dom going, you are really lucky to have a slave like her. Okay. I want to be that, that pride. I want to be that. Okay. Well, the funny thing is later on when I did go the other way and uh, find my dominant side of it is that I also want my sub to be, I still to this day want somebody to come to me and say, you are so lucky to have her as your slave because I did not take her. She has given that to me. She's, mm -hmm. she, she has, can make that choice to surrender the, that power exchange to anybody in the world. Okay. So for me, to get it, I feel very special. And, you know, and my collar is a, is a, is a pro-dom and, uh, and, and everybody knows it, but she has chosen out of respect and admiration and caring and stuff to, to surrender and be collared to me, okay? And she's not ashamed of it and I'm, and I'm proud of her. Um, but I want people to look at me and say, wow, you know, it must be really special to have someone like that give you that. So my, my transition from being sub to dom in a mental and emotional aspect was, uh, I've always been caring. I was born in, in, down in New Orleans. So I was, you know, in, was raised with manners and, and things like that. So it was, the, a lot of it was not a matter of dominance and submission. It was a matter of good behavior and, and manners and respect which in the leather community is about trust, honor, respect. So everything's kind of seemed to come together. Um, I, first time I was, um, uh, when I was collared, and apparently my dom already knew, you know, the direction I was eventually be, we were going to go to a party. And uh, he said, I feel like switching tonight. And my first thought was, fuck, I hope it's okay to say that. The fuck! I don't want to do that. I you know because I love the subspace. I love that subspace, and I um, damn. But when we, I had also been taught. Actually, this is important. I was also taught when I was a sub how to flog, how to throw a single tail, how do you do by the one, how to, because the, there were no classes, there were no things, you know, internet, there were no no dungeons really, except for threshold or jam society. We do a party every three months, so uh, they said to me you need to know how to do these things because when you play with somebody, you need to recognize whether they know what they're doing. And if you know the correct way to do it, you'll recognize if somebody doesn't. So I knew. So when we, we did the scene and it just, wow, it, 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 it was like flipping a switch. It's like, this is where I need to be. And literally my dynamic changed overnight. The collar came off. Um, I found that um, basically, as much as I love that substitute space, that euphoric feel, that dom space was like a shot of adrenaline. It was, it was really hyper. And that word focus came into it. You're throwing a whip. You're doing things that could hurt somebody. You have to be focused on what you're doing. Because, you know, if you make a mistake, somebody else is going to pay the price. So that focus was, was just such a rush. And everything. Everything in the room, everything, all everything around you goes away. The only thing is the magic between you and the person you're playing with. That focus and that intensity, and you're kind of like what you're doing to them. You're kind of taking each other up like a ladder. Every time you take them up, they take me up, and every time I take them up, or uh, they take me up, I take them up. And that focus was just—I mean, I can't say enough about about it. That's—it's a simple five-letter word but it has so much meaning 
to when you allow yourself to focus on something. And you talked about the tools of the trade, the flogger, the whip, but it seems as though the brain and the mind are the most powerful tools that a dom can have. Oh, yes. I, I tell people when I do my classes, like, the biggest sex organs between your ears. Okay. Um, if you can control someone's mind, uh, the body will follow. And, uh, and a little trade secret kind of is that when I play with people, <clears throat> the first time I play with them, I always tell them, you know, when we finish, you're going to take and tell me you could have went farther. Okay. And that's what I want. I want you because when first time you play, there's going to be some apprehension. It's going to be, going to be kind of nervous. You're going to be, you know, not, yeah, and subconsciously, there's going to be a wall up because you're going to have to, you're going to feel like you have to be aware in case you have to say stop or anything. Okay. But once we do that first session and it's pleasurable and it, it, it touches some things and gets some biochemical stuff going on and, and you find yourself in a little bit of a space, now all of a sudden that subconscious walls come down so the next time we play you're you're not worried about am i going am i going to be in danger am i going to get hurt or harmed or anything like that and you allow your you, the freedom and that's as a dom i feel my responsibility with those tools of the trade is to bring somebody's mind uh at ease so that their body so what's happening inside their body uh so they can get to have the, that experience. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the brain, uh, you know, biochemically that that gives us those endorphins and that dopamine, and uh, and sometimes it it starts taking away uh, certain uh, chemicals to replenish others to make those endorphins. And you'll see people sometimes at the end of the scene where they feel like almost like they're drunk or they're hard to stand up, and it's because those those parts of the brain are actually not working correctly. They've been stripped with certain, of certain uh, chemicals, you know, to compensate for some of these other areas of the brain it needs to formulate the, the hormones and the dopamine and the endorphins to get you into that subspace. Basically that's nature's way of, of handling pain. And what we do with BDSM when we start off it's not, we start off slow and easy and we're basically tricking the mind into saying, oh, oh we're getting hit. So it reverts into that primal um, state of we start to release these endorphins. We're getting hit. We need to protect ourselves against pain. And uh, when you do it right, that threshold between pain and pleasure start to become one. The pain is the pleasure, the pleasure is the pain. As I'm sitting here massaging a bruise that was given to me by my queen over the weekend on New Year's Eve, I am reminded of a portion of the interview that you gave to LA Weekly, which is an amazing interview, and I'm going to link it in the show notes, that talked about the transition of when a sub is doing something for themselves and then makes this transition of doing it for their mistress and how that, I guess, epiphany creates even more possibilities for a sub because I know personally, the harder that my queen will hit me the more I don't want to give up because I want her to be happy. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when, when I reached that, I was like, Oh my God, how am I doing this? And then I realized it wasn't about me. It was about her. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, as a, I only speak for myself as a top, I find myself in that same way. I know that what I'm doing is going to bring my play partner to a level that they could never achieve on their own. And so, so you know, and that's why a little bit earlier when I said, we're kind of picking each other up, you know, I'm doing to you and you're giving back to me and I'm giving to you and you're giving back to me. And so it's a very mutual uh, journey that you're on with the scene. <clears throat> and the funny thing is that experience 
about doing it for the other person isn't unique, I think, to our lifestyle. I, I think I, I try to explain to people that it's in a vanilla relationship, you know, you give somebody, you bring somebody candy or you bring somebody flowers or you give them a gift, okay? It makes you feel good when you, they get a smile or when they're happy to receive something. So I think as humans, we all really, most people have an inherent um, desire to please another person, okay? Especially if it's somebody you care about, okay? And um, in our relationship, we may just kind of demonstrate it a little bit differently than, than a vanilla relationship mm -hmm. with. But it is about fulfillment because by making you happy makes me happy. Basically, you know, when, like I said, when you're, when you find yourself taking that and you realize, you know, that it's not something that you're, you're going, Hey, hit me harder. You're doing, there's a reason you're saying hit me harder. And it's because it's, it's, you know, it's bringing enjoyment to the person you're playing with, which makes you feel good. So it gives you a fulfillment. And I think that's the big key to a successful MS master slave or um, Dom sub relationship is that uh, each person each side is doing, is always looking out for the other side and trying to do something that they're it's going to help the other person, make the other person happy. It's a big fallacy to believe that in a, in a dom sub relationship, that's all about the dom. When you look back at the years when you started your original space coming out to today, has the art of doming evolved or is the foundation very much the same? I think that I think the foundation has changed a little bit, but the the art has really evolved. I mean, uh, I can say 20 years ago, uh, what was edge play then is kind of like mainstream play now. Uh, as Violet Wan was something that you didn't see very often. Fire play was a rarity. Um, there were only a couple of people. I mean, there were very, very few even pro doms that were using, a, you know, single tail um, and stuff. And the pro doming had a lot to do with, you know, with traditional things like spanking and paddles and bondage and, and so on. So the art has evolved quite, uh, quite a bit. And I think through... Uh, our acceptance of each other and the ability to have society take us out of the DSM as a uh, as an illness or a mental illness. It's um, we can we get a little bit more acceptance or tolerance to be able to be a little bit more public, which has allowed us to have these dungeons and to have to do classes and workshops and have events like DomCon. So as you go to these events. I mean, I, I go to some of these classes with Dom Conner and I come out learning something. I've mm -hmm. never, uh, I'll never know it all. And even if I'm, as people talk about how good I am with, with whips and stuff, that I'll see somebody with a little bit different technique. And there's been a lot of people, my, my technique of throwing whips is very unconventional. I talk, pretty much taught myself and, um, and stuff. And there was a time up, at, you know, from between 2000 and probably 2012, anybody who I had taught, I, they would get stories about they'd be in Chicago. And they're like, oh, somebody, Mr. Simon must have taught you that, huh? But I teach people a different style. They teach me a different style. And as a result, the, the, our art has grown and expanded. Um, and so the, uh, the foundation, I think, is still pretty much the same with a little bit of um, uh, through a lot of the events that we have a little bit better understanding so that that foundation is not so much like I said even with the pros it's not we generally it's not about well this is all us we still realize that people are coming to us for a reason okay mm -hmm. there's a need okay and we're there to fulfill that need you know we may be dominant and we may be mistresses or whatever but you know we don't have the power to take, or we don't have the, the ability to take some of the power, they still have to, to surrender to us. And just like if we get stopped by a, by a police officer, we have, to, we have to submit, 
on there. You know, every you find yourself, everybody in this world is going to find themselves in some capacity in a position of service or submission, whether they like it or not. Last week, I had Mistress Petra Hunter on the show from Dallas, and she brought up a very interesting concept that I have heard before and actually agree with a lot. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on it. Is kink a preference or an orientation? I totally believe that it's an, uh, it's an orientation. Uh, and, and I'll take it one step farther. <clears throat> I think it's something that we all have. I think every single person has it. It's just well, society doesn't influence us to be kink. I think society influences some people not to be. Okay, I think if people, if some people weren't born or brought up in a very, in a very overly religious situation, they're gonna be a little bit more open-minded. Um, if they're not brought up in an environment where misogyny is so important that it, you know, they go, "Oh, I could never submit," you know, and that's the weakness and things like that. Okay, if they hold. I think people who do not get into this. For the most part, there is something that is put a wall up that says, "This is not okay for me to do," or "This is not this is not okay for me. I don't feel comfortable doing it." I think inherently, because there's so many things that's going on inside of us, with biochemically and stuff, with like with the endorphins and the adrenalines and things like that, we're all human. Okay, I think if we just allowed our our raw emotions and open mind to be able to experience some things without judgment or prejudgment, I think we, we would have a lot more. I've, I've dealt with a lot of people who said, oh, I could never do with this. Or, I never have, no, I never been do that to me. And finally, they'll watch a scene and one day and say, well, you know, I'm try, try it and go, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, that's, that's kind of my outlook on it. Yeah, I think it's orientation, but I also think it's an orientation that we're all we're all born with it's just whether that orientation gets developed or not or we allow it to develop i should say i'm curious what your answer is to this but i will give you mine first the most important quality of a good sub is and i would say vulnerability what say you I would say the most important quality is respect. Mm -hmm. I think a, a good sub, a good sub or a good slave is someone who has high self-esteem and a lot of self-respect. And they don't think that they're, you know, they're not a worthless piece. You know, that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. You know, whenever I hear something, well, I'm only a slave or I'm just a sub or I'm not worth it. It's like, if you don't think you're worth what, what makes you think, you're worth anything to me then mm -hmm. okay if i'm showing interest you you do have worth okay you know you may not realize it but uh for me i want a submissive or an s type that has a lot of self-esteem a lot of self-respect that realizes that what i'm giving to you is something special okay um you this is something that i'm giving you that you can't get from me unless i give it to you okay uh, I, I don't believe in degradation, okay? Humiliation can be fun. I don't believe in degradation. It's, um, or getting personal like that. I, I believe in re, uh, trust, honor, respect goes two ways. And that uh, while vulnerability is a, an asset that I think that allows a submissive to grow in, mm -hmm. okay? And to become a better S-type and maybe even a better person and I say that because being on the S side of it for a while, I would not be where I am today if it wasn't. I wouldn't have that same level of self-discipline. I wouldn't have, not have learned the lessons. I was a very introverted person when I was grow growing up. Uh, the thought of ever getting on a stage, you know, was terrifying, okay? But I got taken out of my comfort zone, okay? My dom realized my vulnerability is that I did not want to be the first person at a play party up there to play. It's like somebody didn't want to you know, be the first one out there dancing. Okay, I was, I was put in a, in a position of uh, outside my comfort zone and that's how I grew. And I think as a sub, if you allow yourself, if you say, hey, I am vulnerable, but I understand that and it's nothing to be ashamed of. 
And being vulnerable means that it's not always going to be a comfortable position for me, whether it's taking orders or performing or dressing or whatever it happens to be, that it's going to be a learning experience and I'm going to grow from it. And when you grow from it, we all grow from it. When we return on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, we're going to talk with Mistress Cyan about the world of leather and also talk about DomCon when we return. Realizing that you're polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections on poly-specific dating, such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works, real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find polyam people and how to make a positive impression, how to date as an existing couple, and if you should, dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com. This is Alicia Zadig, author of the new book, Yes, Mistress. I'm also Mistress Alicia, a leading dominatrix and BDSM expert. My book, Yes, Mistress, takes you on a provocative, eye-opening journey into the erotic worlds of kink, fetish, and female domination. Join me for a fascinating conversation. Male submission is more common than you think and more rewarding than you can ever imagine. Yes, Mistress, now available on Kindle, and you can order your copy at yesmistress.com. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please, remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. Welcome back to the show, joined by Mistress Cyan, who has found herself deep in the land of leather and for so many beautiful ways. Tell us how you got into that world and the difference that you've made in it. Uh, Okay. Um, well, when I got into it early on, uh, when I said there were no public places like that, and some of the people that I got to meet through the, in the private uh, world were in the leather community, and uh, and they taught me that basically one of the first things that, that about leather that they told me is that, and it's always stuck with me, and it's something that I believe in. They said um, BDSM is what we do, leather is who we are, hmm. and leather is about about a lifestyle, it's about the way you live your life. And the, the foundation, the tenets of it is trust, honor, respect, okay? And that pretty much wraps it all up. I mean, my, my, um, my DS house, uh, I modify a little bit as far as like I call it, I say it's uh, trust, honor, trust, honor, respect, and love uh, on it. But those were the foundations. They said, if you practice those foundations, Okay, and everybody in your in your community follows that those same ones. You're going to have a very tight community that you can feel safe in and uh, be able to be yourself. And so it was very attractive to me. Um, I mean, I didn't know that much about it other than in some reading, and it was one of those things that by the time you sometimes you realize that. Uh, uh, you learn about leather, you find out that you were already basically part of it and just didn't know it. Um, it's about ethics. It's about morality as far as, uh, you know, uh, doing the right thing, doing, doing what's right. And I think in the leather lifestyle, it's also about, you know, hot sex, hot, sexy, erotic, you know, sex, uh, you know, which in the BDSM community, it's not quite the same. BDS, in a lot of BDSM people get the, um, our focus in the BDSM community is touching the mind and the brain and, and giving you that mental orgasm, so to speak, that euphoric feeling that you feel like you can walk on air two feet off the ground for two days, okay? Where, you know, a, a lot of the leather people, the BDSM is kind of like the foreplay of it, 
it's to it's to get you warmed up and get hot and then have have the sex on. So they are really there's a lot of commonality, but there's still you know quite a bit of diversity. Uh, plus the leather community comes out of the gay gay community because then gay men were in the military and you could not that was a no no uh, when they got out. It was against the law in civilian life. You could get arrested for holding hands with the same sex. You could get arrested for dancing with the same sex. Um, you could get arrested for wearing garments of the, of the opposite gender. So uh, these guys coming out of the military were used to protocols, you know, with, with standards of behavior. And, um, uh, and in order to feel kind of safe, uh, a lot of them had done, got leather jackets, leather vests, they put a club on the back like the satyrs, you know, or the warriors, and we're motorcycle groups, you know, they would do these, these runs up to the mountains or these things, and nobody ever would have thought that these are a bunch of gay men going up having sex together, you know, nobody was going to mess with a fucking biker, you know, so it was a persona that was a protection, yet it was still hot and erotic with motorcycles and the leather and the scent of the leather and, and the masculinity surrounding it all. Um, since then, it's kind of evolved more into a lot of the head community because the, the head community and the BDSM community has kind of adopted those, those principles about the sexuality and the eroticism and uh, the, uh, the, the ethical way of living your life. Uh, kind of all fits in. And you were talking about the right way to do things. And I swear I could take this entire episode and not be able to finish up all the awards you've won, whether it be in the leather community or in the uh, fetish and, and BDSM community as well. But through your leather work and through your charity work, you have raised thousands of dollars and provided thousands of meals for people who need them. Discuss that passion with me. Well, it all started back in, um, in the early 90s when I was in the music business. We, uh, I was, uh, did, every year I did a show, um, a Toys for Tots concert or a gig at, at a club, you know, with bands and stuff like that. And people would bring toys and the Marines would come down and um, uh, and pick them up and stuff. Or they would have a couple of Marines down there greeting people and collecting them all. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I got into the, um, in my very first uh, experience with, uh, with the, you know, going to, to actual dungeons and stuff like that, I decided to do a slave auction. And, uh, and instead of money or anything like that, we would give people, you know, the, for the Thanksgiving one, we've been doing it now, something like 24 years or something, 23, 24 years. And um, for Thanksgiving, people bring cans of food and they get auction dollars. And we got lots of volunteers that go up on stage and to get auctioned off for the evening, you know, as a bottom and a sub. And, uh, and the food goes to the food banks or the churches and stuff like that. And then in Christmas, we do the same thing. We, we do another slave auction, the Christmas slave auction, and we collect toys and blankets for the needy and food. And uh, it's been, uh, I, I was brought up, I think, um, believing that if you, you, nothing comes for free in this world. Okay. And you, it's what you do is going to gauge what you get. Okay. So essentially you receive through giving. Okay. Whether it's and investing, whether it's time or money or whatever else, you know, when you put something out, something's going to come in return. And you, if it's something bad, you know, you go and punch somebody, you're going to get hit back. You know, if it's, so if you put something negative out there, probably something negative is going to come back. But if you put something positive out there, positive always comes back. Um, and the one thing I push, you know, because I've gotten fundraiser of the year, mentor of the year a number of times, is that it's, it's the, the feeling in your heart of knowing that you made a difference 
in this world with you know my presence and this is probably the most important thing that that if i i could take to my grave is that my presence has enhanced and enriched the lives of some people can i change the world no but you know what i can change the world for some people you know some people can have a um, food meal on their table at thanksgiving some kids can wake up and get a toy that they may not have had and everybody that comes to these events that donates those, I make it a point to tell them, it's not just me, it's you. Every, that toy you brought is, is changing a, a child's life. That can of food is feeding somebody who might not have eaten otherwise. You know? So, uh, and when I joined the LA Leather Coalition, it was like, okay, this is what I bring to the table, okay? It's not what can you do for me. Let me tell you what I can bring to the table. Okay, I'm not worried about what's going to come back, you know, later on, because I know, and if anything else, the, the feeling I got in my heart, there's no award, no amount of money that can give me the feeling that I have knowing that I, in this world, I made a difference. And that is probably the most important thing to me. And even when I put into simple things, like in my scenes, I know that I'm making a difference with somebody tonight. I'm bringing them to a place that they may not have feel and you know what in return i'm getting a lot of a lot of uh fulfillment and one of your biggest contributions to the community itself is domcon as someone who has not been but would like to go explain to the people who don't know what domcon is all about Okay, well, DomCon is an event that we do twice a year, <clears throat> um, once in Los Angeles in May, and now once in uh, October in New Orleans. And so the first 12 years, we did uh, one in LA and one in Atlanta. And after 12 years, we moved the Atlanta to New Orleans. And it's an event that runs be between three and five days, five days in LA, three days in uh, New Orleans, um, or four days in New Orleans. And it's brings people together for a variety of reasons. It has a social aspect to it. We have a lot of social activities where, um, you know, we have newbie social and lifestyle social, male dom social, um, pro dom social, VIP social, um, uh, people of color social, things, areas and social events that people can come meet like-minded people or new people and get involved in a, in a community they may not be able to be in otherwise. Um, we have an educational aspect of it. We have usually 50 to 60 classes um, over the courses of the course of the, the three days of relationships, of technique, of uh, dynamics, uh, all those types of things so you can come learn from. We have two days of uh, industry only for the professionals to come share on business practices and learn, you know, more about the business and uh, techniques so they can be safe when a client comes to see them that they're not going to be, um, they're going to be safe uh, and, and not harm that person. Um, we have a play party, we have the fetish ball, um, we have a cross-dressers pageant, we have a uh, for pet play, you know, pony uh, show and uh, pet awards. And, I mean, there's literally something for everyone. And if uh, and if it's something that you've heard of, you've seen on TV or whatever, it's a place that you can come and you won't see like the attitudes and stuff. Nobody's there to, to help. Our presenters that come, they come from all over the country. They come from Asia, they come from Europe, they come from Australia, South Africa, um, comes on their own dime. Uh, it's, and because of that, we know we got people who care and they're not doing it for the money. They're coming in and they're getting, um, they're coming in their own dime, so to speak, to travel and their hotel arrangements. Uh, we do comp them and their guests into the event, but it's, it's for the love of it all. So it's an opportunity for us to come together and celebrate our commonality and respect our diversity. You know, we're not trying to homogenize everything. We're trying to give everybody a little bit better understanding of the King community, the adult alternative community, um, all genders, sexual orientations are all uh, welcome and present. 
I have barely scratched the surface here, <laughs> especially having read your biography and read interviews. And I, as we approach DomCon and as we approach other things, I would love to have you back on to talk about some more of your life because it's so fascinating. It's literally like a history of the the scene and what it has been and what it can become and you have been such an inspiration to me during this interview that's for sure and i look forward to continuing this conversation at some point maybe even in person at a domcot that would be great and you know i'm uh, i'm on the board of directors for la pride and the board of directors for la leather pride and work with avn so it's not just domcon if you've got you know if you find yourself next year in Las Vegas for the ABN um, Adult Expo, I handle all the, um, the kink and fetish areas and BDSM areas and stuff, uh, pride, all those things. So, you know, maybe we can cross paths. And if you want to try to maybe make some plans for DomCon LA, which is uh, May 18th through 22nd, um, we'd love to have you as a guest and to have you broadcast from there and interview from there and and uh, maybe even uh, sit in on a panel in one of the classes and uh, share some of your experiences. You've got a lot to share as well. I would be honored and I will start making arrangements. <laughs> Mr. Cyan, it's been an honor having you on. Thank you so very much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. What a fantastic person with an amazing story. And with her help, we may be able to bring you some more great stories in a whole new way. Stay tuned for details on that. Next week, a show more than a year in the making. We speak to the Satanatrix, the one, the only Lady Vi, whose following is loyal, whose story is adventurous, and whose personality is one of the most intriguing ones I've ever come across. We've been trying to put this show together since we started the show nearly 17 months ago. But when she was scheduled to join us, a funny thing happened in New Orleans that kept her from coming on. We'll talk about that and so much more when we meet Lady Vi next week on the show. Until then, I'm John, known to many of you as Hi There Catsuit. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky done differently.